picking back up where we left off and we finished chapter 7. So we are going to take all of chapter 8 today, all 13 verses. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Now, when we get started here in chapter 8, we have to remind, if you weren't with us last week, here we see that we switch subjects. We went through a whole series in chapter 7 on the principles of marriage. We talked about marriage and the, uh, between two Christians and celibacy with that and how that should work and how husband and wife should communicate effectively when it comes to intimacy. We then took on the subject of divorce and what's in the eyes of God, how he, he, he hates divorce, but he does, in some circumstance, a couple of circumstances, allow that to happen. Then we took on the subject of singleness and how good it is to be single and that God has given you the gift of singleness, the gift of celibacy, that that is a good state, that is nothing wrong with it. Matter of fact, that Paul even says that is even better because then you can serve the Lord more freely. And then we took on the subject of what happens if uh, that God has put on your heart to remarry because you've lost a loved one and the guidance and the principles around that. Today we're going to see that Paul is going to now, the Holy Spirit is going to show to us over the next three chapters another subject concerning the things of idols. Because obviously there was a problem within the Corinthian church, especially with the Corinthian Christians, dealing with idols in their life. Things that were dominating or becoming the forefront of their, their minds and they, they were following idols versus the one true God. And Paul is going to address this because apparently there was this letter that has come to him from these Corinthian Christians and, and, and Corinth. That for some reason, in that body of believers, they couldn't sort out some of these subjects on, on marriage. And today, you're going to see that they couldn't sort out and become unity over the, the, the things around idols. And there was some division going on. So they wrote this letter and sent it to Paul, who wasn't even there. But he was the Christian leader. He was a leader that they trusted. They both agreed, let's send it to Paul, because Paul was the one who started the church. But we're going to see that Paul is going to address these questions from their letter, and he's going to address it today. Specifically, he's going to take on the subject of eating of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And what are we supposed to do as Christians if we find ourselves in that situation? Because certain things had been offered to idols, and they all, if you notice in verse 1, they all have knowledge that this was taking place. They understood the knowledge. Well, what knowledge are they referring to? 
Well, we're going to see that they had the fact that idols were nothing. And we're going to see that in verse 4 as we get to that. But here we find that there was a situation where during these period of time, these, these, the people would come to the temples. These temples were all over. They were, they were worshiping false gods. The god of Zeus or, or the god of Diana or whatever they may. These prophet, these priests or these priestess or a prophetess. And they would come there and they would sacrifice. They would do, still do sacrifices. And they would split this sacrifice up into three portions. One portion would actually go and be burnt in honor of that God, just like the Jews were doing. But then there was one portion was given to the worshiper to take home and eat. But it was that third portion that was causing some problems. That third portion was where they were sacrificed, and that third portion was given to the priests who were overseeing that sacrifice. Now, because these priests or these priestess were not in line with God and wasn't thinking rightly, they said any times that all these sacrifices, they had more meat than what they could deal with. So what are you going to do with this meat? Because it was a luxury, like to many times today, to have a good steak on the barbecue today is a luxury for some. So these priests would then look and say, hey, what am I going to do with this? we got so much meat from all the sacrifice. What are we going to do with this? So what would happen is, is they would then sell their meat to make money. They would sell it in the marketplace. Or they would have it in the temple restaurant here. And so people were coming to this restaurant because, why? Because this marketplace, they would come to the market and they would see those who sacrificed not to idols this meat. There was meat that they raised up. They invested in that, 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 that animal. They, they took care of it. They, they spent a lot of money take, to raise it up, to be able to take it to the market, to get a fair market value. And they would make their living off of that. But these priests who received this free meat that they should be used to provide for themselves had too much. They were taking advantage of going to the markets and selling it at a reduced price. But the challenge would be this. When you as a Christian, if you as a person coming to the market, what do you do? Do you always go to the most expensive meats? Or are you looking for a bargain like everyone else is looking for a bargain? Well, of course they were looking for a bargain. They were looking at two meats going, this one's a lot more expensive, and this one's really cheap. Why is it cheap? It's still the same. This looks like good meat. But the challenge as a Christian is, is once they found out that that meat was sacrificed first to an idol, within the Christian church there were two camps. There was those who had Christian liberty that understood that it, there's no such, there's just there's no such thing as other gods. It's just, it's just in their minds. It's just they sacrifice to a false god, an idol. That, there's no value. And I have Christian liberty. I can eat that meat. It's cheaper. It's more less expensive. I can buy more for my family. It's not a bad thing. I have liberty to do that. But then the other side of the camp within the church were more of a maybe legalistic or more structured or maybe in this case they did not have that freedom in their mind, their conscience, as we will see. 
to actually buy meat that was once sacrificed to an idol. And the question now comes to Paul, do you or do you not? Do you or do you not? You love me or you love me not? It's can I eat this, God, and will you still love me or can I not? I'm not going to eat this, and God, what are you going to say about it? So these two camps come to a point where the meat is in front of them. One is cheaper than the other. And this issue is raised and the question is raised. Can we eat this meat that came from the temple? Can we purchase it with a clear conscience? Can a Christian eat a pagan temp from a, in a pagan temple restaurant? Well, if we, ate, if we had a point in our life where we said we're not going to eat in any pagan temple restaurant, you know how many restaurants you would be cut out from this, you know, today? Because most restaurants are not in business to serve the Lord. <laughs> I, hate to, I hate to break that news to you. But do you have clear conscience? And we will see as we look in further into this. But we know that, Paul says, we know that all we all have knowledge. So instead of Paul coming right out and answering the question, he first talks about the principles of knowledge and love here. Christian behavior is always to be founded on love, not knowledge. The goal of the Christian is life is not knowledge, but love that produces fruit of the Spirit within our lives. We become Christians and we want to grow not in just knowledge, but in our the love for Christ and love for one another, right? That's where we see that in Galatians 5.22 and Ephesians 5.9. But the Christian... Corinthians were enriched in spiritual knowledge. We saw that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, but they were very proud of their achievements, if you remember. When we studied that in chapter 1, they were becoming very spiritually proud because they had so much knowledge, they knew so much about the things of God, but the problem is, is they were not um, applying it properly in love in their life. And what was happening was causing division within the church. You mean you don't know that? I know that. You don't know that scripture? I know that scripture. You're doing that, but if you knew the word, you wouldn't do that. And so they were using it as being, as Paul says right here in verse 1, knowledge was puffing them up. That is not what we want to have happen. You see and you've noticed here, there's two things that's between knowledge and love that Paul is going to drive home here. That both knowledge and love have an effect on our lives. Both of them make something grow. The difference between puffs up means prideful, it puffs you up. But love edifies or builds up. And there's definitely a difference between a bubble and a building. Some Christians grow and others just swell. We want to grow in our relationship. We want to grow in love. 
Paul understood this. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And so we have to seek after the Lord to understand the difference between those things. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but not but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, there it is, all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not have love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me what? Nothing. So Paul is trying to get them to understand. You're asking me a question about can we eat this meat from the, that was worshipped to some idols? Or can I not? Is it my freedom to do that? Do I have Christian liberty to do that? Or do I not have liberty to do that? And he says, well, let me make sure you understand the first, the foundation of, of knowledge and love. Just because you know and knowledge, and, and it very clear, he says, all have knowledge. But is it the right thing to do? Out of, out of a, a filter of love, is that the right thing to do, even though you know you have the knowledge to freedom to do it? Because it's not about us. It's, it's about others. As a Christian, it's not about our life. It is about how we're going to serve and to love others. It's not about our Christian liberty, but in light of others, our Christian liberty must be founded on love. Because it's not founded on love, what we will find ourselves in is becoming very knowledgeable and puffed up and unloving. Have you ever met a Christian who you come and they say, you're a you're, I'm a Christian, been a Christian 30, 40 years. But when you spend time with them, do you actually sense love from them? I always go, wow. I expect that was, if that's my brother, there'd be immediate bond because the spirit is inside me, is inside him. We should be, there should be a love. There should be immediate connection. Like we're brothers. But it ever happened where you go, wow, I don't sense their love. I don't sense a connection. I don't sense any. Because there are some who are just Christian in knowledge. There's no growth. There's no maturity. There's no fruit of love that God has produced in their life. So the question we must ask is, how will it affect others before we make that decision? How will it build up others' faith in Jesus Christ versus just getting my truth across to them? And then Paul finishes in verse 2. He says, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything. <laughs> so I love Paul. Paul doesn't, you know, he doesn't sugarcoat it. And I love that because he says, yeah, I know you think you know. <laughs> I think you've already figured this all out. You've got it all dialed in and everyone else has to come to where you are. I got that. But just in case you forget, let me humble you a little bit, Paul says. If you think, if you think we know it all, we really don't know anything. That's what he's saying. You really think you've arrived, but you have not. It is one thing to know doctrine. And it's quite something else to know God himself. Satan himself 
knows Jesus. That doesn't mean he has a personal relationship with Jesus. It is possible to grow in Bible knowledge and yet not grow in the grace of God in one's personal relationship with God. That's where we are here. Well, that's why we not only study, but we also application of how we can grow in love as a Christian. Not just pump in the, the knowledge. And so what is the test for you and I as a Christian? What is the test that Paul is saying here? It's not the knowledge that's the test if you're a Christian or not. It is the fact that it's the love in you of Christ the grace of God in you. That is the test that we need to look at. We're to be fruit inspectors of our life and in the lives of others of Christians. And that's why Paul continues here, not only the fact that there's a knowledge aspect that is a foundation, it's good for you to have, but you must hear in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Did you get those words? If anyone loves God, if they claim to love God, if you love God, this one is known by him. There's a knowledge that is important. The knowledge of God has of those who love him. If God knows you love him, he knows you love him. That's the key. That's the love. It's not just knowledge. I have met a lot of very smart Bible scholars. But where's the love? See, knowledge and love goes together, does it not? We see it very simple in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 15. We are to speak the truth in power? Speak the truth in more truth? Speak the truth with a big club? No, speak truth in love. It must go together. See, knowledge is power, no doubt. And it must be used in love, but love must always be controlled by knowledge. There's a balance. Because I know some people love, 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 and I'll love you for wherever you are and everything else. And you sit there and go, but do you know and understand what the Bible says in regards to that subject? So some people can be so loving that they're not willing to take the step and tell them the truth and watch them go right to hell. It, was that profitable? Was that good? No. So you must keep that balance of knowledge and love. They go together. I find it very interesting in verse uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. Lengthy, but let me read this here so you can understand it. 6 through 11. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Did you catch that? Everyone who loves is 
born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do we see how simple it is? Not always easy, but simple. Allowing the, the things that God will bring to to in front of you as he teaches you, but by his spirit teaches you the word of God to apply that, to always remember to do and apply with love. Allow him to produce that fruit in your life. That's why Paul continues in verse 4, therefore concerning the eating of these things offered to idols. Now he's going to lay out the principles of knowledge and love. Now based on your understanding of knowledge... Truth and love, do it rightly here. Keeping others at focus is not about you. Now let me lay this out. Therefore, concerning the eating of the things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, are there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God. We sang it today. There is one God, the Father of whom are all things. How many? Well, all, some things? All things. And we for him. And the one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we live. So Paul here continues here and says and, and highlights because there is only one true God, guys. My brothers and sisters in Corinth, there is one God that you're following. There is one God that you're going to worship. There is one God. There are not more than one God. Now, if you get that foundation laid out and solid in your mind, then all these other things will come into perspective for you. Because there are no other gods. There's one God. Now, there might be those so-called gods that people are worshiping out there. <laughs> There's a lot of so-called gods out there. But that's why even in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8, it says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. But those who make them are like them. Did you see that? Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. It's so important for you and I to understand to put and worship 
anything or anyone else, you're creating your own false god. You're creating your own little G-god. That is just, it, yeah, it looks like it has a mouth, it looks like it has hands and feet and does all things, but it's not capable of doing anything. Why would you worship him? Why would you even follow him or follow her or follow her to have that around your neck or on the wall or anything that you bow down to and worship? You and I are not to do that. If that meat was offered to Zeus, there is no Zeus. He's just an idol. It's something that someone created in their minds, in their darkness of their minds. They've created this false god. And there is no other God but one. He is only one. And Zeus is not. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul calls Satan the God of this age, small g. Certainly Paul is not sitting here saying that Satan is a true God and somehow one in a rival of God or equal of God because they are not. He was created. But Satan can be called the God of this age. Why? Because so many people worship him. Because so many people put him first in their life and not the God of, of creation. Chuck Smith used to say, what is your, ma your master passion? What is your master passion? What do you spend most of your time thinking about, spending your money for, your time with, talking to others about? What is your, mashin, your, your master passion? What are you living for? Because what we worship becomes our idol. And it's so subtle. If you talk to a Christian and say, do you put that sport in front of God? No, of course my sport is not my idol. You have a hobby. Oh, my hobby is not my idol. Children are not my idol. My spouse is not my idol. Of course not. But when you sit there and say, who is your master passion? What do you think about constantly over and what are you living for? Like, I could, I'll just die if I don't get to have fill in the blank. How easy it can be there. That's why Matthew 6.33 says, But first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're supposed to seek first God. God needs to be our master passion. Why? Because there's one God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul isn't distinguishing Jesus from God. He's sitting here in this verse saying, Jesus, we are, he's not even saying Jesus, we're not, it was not God, because we know by Scripture that he is. For we know and see in the Scripture that God is everything who are all things. He's eternal. We know in Deuteronomy 6.4, he says, The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 44.6, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. 
1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and the man, the man Christ Jesus. And even John chapter 17, verse 5, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That is a, absolutely a solid verse, John chapter 17, verse 5, to share with anyone who has an idol, who has a passion other than for Jesus. Because even in Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And you remember? <laughs> Can you see? Who's going to answer first, right? Do you think there's no anything different under the sun today? Have you ever asked someone that question? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Or who is Jesus Christ? Well, if you're talking to a Mormon... They think he's just the spirit brother of Lucifer. If you're talking to a Jehovah Witness, he think, they think Jesus is just Michael the Archangel. If you're talking to a Buddhist, he, they think he's just an avatar of God. If you're talking to a Muslim or you're talking to a Jew, they think he's just simply a prophet. But like, make sure, no mistake, Jesus Christ is God Almighty himself in the flesh. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that is solid, people. And don't let anyone else with any other false religion out there tell you otherwise, because you have the power of God and the knowledge and the love to lovingly share with them the scriptures of truth. And let the Holy Spirit do a work in that person's life. Because you have the truth and you have the passion of love be willing to share that good news to them because they're, they're lost. They have a, a master passion other than Jesus Christ. And they're going to hell because of it. John 10.30, I and my father are one. John 20. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God, Titus 2.13, Oh, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans 9.5, eternal God. 1 John 5.20, true God. Jesus is the true God that you can live your life based upon. Yes, there is only one God. God of everything. He is God Almighty. Now, for us with Christian liberty, we have seen the knowledge. We see how important it is to have God's love being the dominant foundation as we share that knowledge. But now we see in the remaining of these verses a conscience. Paul will show them a better way of living out your Christian liberty with love. And how important that is. He says here in verse 7, he says, However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness 
of the idol. Until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So Paul sits here and says, okay, you've got the knowledge that you have the freedom to eat that meat. But you need to do it in love. Don't sit there and say, I don't know where your walk is with Christ. Get your act together. It's right, clear, and plain in the scriptures. There's only one God, and you, I don't know why you even worry about these false gods. It's just, it's, it's made up by, in the men's of darkness of men's mind. Why do you even mess with this thing? I don't want to hear it. I have the freedom. I have, I have liberty, man, and I'm going to eat this meat. I'm going to save money. It's a good thing for my family. But then you got the, the weak Christian, the one who doesn't understand Christian liberty, doesn't understand grace, doesn't understand the freedoms that God has given you, the Christian freedom that you have in Christ. They're still bound up in the legalism of religion, or they're still bound up in the, something in their conscience that doesn't allow them. So either way it is, even if it's just legalism, that's what we've got. Tradition, we've never done that. Paul is saying, because of love, there's an element that you must always keep in mind, and that is called your conscience or the conscience of another person. A conscience is that internal court where our actions are judged and are either approved or condemned. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. Sit there and something comes and pops into your mind. You're immediately, your conscience is going, what's the outcome? What does the judge say? Can or can I not? Is it a go or no go? Green light, red light. And that conscience is there to help us to understand what we do in our lives to make sure we're pleasing God. A conscience is not the law. It bears witness to God's moral law. What does God say about that? Knowledge. Do, 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 do. Scripture says this. Romans. Blah, blah, blah. No, I'm not touching it. My, con my conscience, I, I don't have a clear conscience on that. I'm not touching it. Why? Because the scripture says no touching. Could be the other side of the coin. I complete liberty of that. And, and someone's mind is like, shh, shh, you shouldn't be touching that man. Why are you going to that movies? Why are you drinking? Why did you watch that? Where did you go here? Why did you do these things? Why aren't you dressed up? Why are you so casual? Why did you go to dance? Why did you go to the theater? And all these things start popping up in legalism and things that you, they don't understand freedom in the Christ. And they're like, I can't believe you went to a theater. I can't believe you had a drink. I can't believe you would go those places. You danced? The two-step? And you have that side of the coin. Now, not all of the Corinthians had come to a point of maturity in their faith when it comes to idols the fact that idols are nothing. And God is everything. Romans 14 verses 22 and 23 says, 
Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is what? Sin. See, we have liberties in Christ. We have freedoms because of Christ. But not everybody has matured to the point of knowledge or understanding and recognizing that we, they have freedom in Christ. They are not legally bound in their thinking. But they get so wrapped up in the legalism of things. Versus understanding the grace of God, understanding the freedoms in Christ. We've got Christ has given us. We're not bound by the, the law. We're bound by grace. And some of these Corinthians felt free to eat these pa- at the pagan temple restaurant or eat that pagan temple meat and had the freedom of saying, yes, I can save money. It's good. It's right. It's not, idols are not even, there's no such thing as idols. I don't even think about those things. I have freedom to eat that meat. Because idols are nothing. I have freedom. But for some, they have a consciousness of the idol. And they eat meat sacrificed to the idol as something offered to an idol. They just can't get it out of their mind that that meat came from that wicked temple and that was being sacrificed to their God and I just in my conscience I I know that happened I can't touch that meat Paul is asking the Corinthian Christians here who know there is nothing to an idol to remember that not everyone knows this that they haven't matured and understand. And you must understand where that brother or sister is in their walk with Christ. And you must put them first. Not force them to come to you. And that's what happens so many. We're all guilty of You hear someone and they're just stuck in legalism, stuck in the, some place. And they say, no, that you have freedom for that. The, the idol is nothing. And instead of lovingly saying, okay, I hear where you're at. Let me help and encourage you and just pray for you. We have a tendency to beat over them. Let me get, did you get that verse? Okay, let me write it out for you and stick it to your forehead. Can you chant it? After, and you try to force them to come quickly to you, to that freedom. You try to force people to live in the level or the, the place where you are in Christian liberties. And they're not there yet. That's why we must be patient with our brothers and sisters. We must just love them where they're at and encourage them and allow the Spirit of God to do a work in their life. It's not because, as Paul refers to their conscious, this this individual, this Christian, being weak, but he says, if you don't recognize it, if you ask them and force them to, I'm going to shove this meat down your throat, brother, because you're going, to, you're going to learn there's freedom in Christ. You're violating their conscience. You're forcing them to go beyond what they can. And I am making a rule, you cannot change the conscience of another person. 
Don't force it. Don't make it. You can't do it to your children. I'm going to change your conscience and your children. No, you can't. You can't do it to your brothers or sisters. Only the Spirit of God can change the conscience of a person. God is long-suffering. God is patient. We must be as well with our brothers and sisters. Their conscience is considered weak, not because they don't have a conscience, it's because it is wrongly informed. Their conscience is operating on the idea that there's, there's really something to an idol, and until they come to the point where God has worked that in their mind and worked that out of their life, and okay, idols are, Zeus is not real, these false idols are not real. It doesn't matter, they're nothing. I've got to get that settled in my heart. But let God do that. I'll speak to those who are not there, but they have such Christian liberty. You've been walking with the Lord. You understand. You must have your Christian liberty with love because if you don't, you're going to sit there and look at that brother and sister and say, but I'm right. <laughs> and I'm not changing. If you can't handle me in my Christian liberties and having the freedom of being able to do this, then take me off the Facebook. Don't come to my house then. And we have a tendency to cut them off and to shove them aside and push them away because you want what you want as a Christian in your liberties. Paul is saying here, for the sake of others, you abstain you you're the one that comes over to them because you want to help them along in their walk because you love them being right is important before God but it is not more important than showing love to the family of God Showing love is more important than you trying to prove to someone you're right. Yes, scripturally right. But you must stay focused on the love. In verse 8, Paul continues, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make you more spiritual because you have some self-control. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying there's, there's no better or worse here in the fact that you eat it or you don't eat it. If you're at a point in your life where you have personal freedom to eat this sacrificed idol, then eat up, man. Give me a triple portion. That's what I say. Uh, heap it up. But if you find yourself sitting next to a rabbi and you go and there's a smorgasbord and you walk up and you see these ooh, thick, juicy ham, man, and you're playing it over your plate and it's piled up and you put some sauce on it and you can just smell that bacon. And you come sit beside a rabbi for the sake of love. It's okay to take that ham and set it aside. Don't eat it in front of them. But eat it later. Don't go to Israel and go into breakfast and walk in and say to the people who are serving you and go, oh, I love the, 
I love the cheese and the fish and all this. This is an interesting breakfast. Where's the bacon? You wouldn't say that in Israel. Because that wouldn't be love. It's kosher. And it's just like if you have someone come over to your house. And you feel you have the freedom to have a glass of wine. You do not offer it to someone who has conscience says, I'm not, I can't drink wine. Oh, you have freedom in Christ, man. You're not going to get drunk. You're going to have a glass of wine. My conscience tells me I cannot drink anything. I, I, I come from that past. You may not know, but I was a drunkard and God saved me. Don't give me a glass of wine. You don't sit there and say, oh, you'll be fine. Here's a bud, man. Let's go. We're having a barbecue. You always have a beer with barbecue. That is not love, my brothers and sisters. Their conscience says they cannot. Why would you tell them and force them to go against their conscience? You would not if you're in love. If you really love them, you would not do that. You'd be very, very, very careful. Because if you don't, that can cause a problem with your brother. Because he says, verse 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. If you really thought about others and not just getting your way or wanting it your way, even though it's truth, it's, you have liberties, it's not, it's not sin, it's not, for you personally to do that. But, but because of your Christian liberty and you don't filter it with your love, it can become a stumbling block for those who are weak. For if anyone sees you, if anyone sees you, you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Their conscience tells them, I can't eat that. But I see my brother, they're doing it. And you might be emboldening them to go do something and go against their conscience at that time. That can cause some problems, stumbling a brother. And because of your knowledge, verse 11, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul wraps here at the end here of this part of the letter. He says, beware. Beware of your Christian liberty. Yes, you have truth. Got it. You can prove it. Quote the scripture, right and left. But you must have your Christian liberty with love. Because if you don't think of how that will affect others to the left or to the right of you, you're really just being selfish. That knowledge is just puffing you up. Your head is swelling. And you're not going to be building up your brother and sister in Christ. You are actually not edifying them and building them up. You're tearing them down. 
That's what Paul is saying. You're inviting them. You're going to cause to a point where they feel, okay, I'm just going to do it. Even though it violates my conscience, I'm going to do it. And it could cause them, to, that act could cause them to spiral their faith and everything in Christ comes spiraling out of control to where they walk away from Christ. That's how serious it is. And then you're not sinning against the person. Did you see the scripture? It, sin is, is it, it doesn't go against the brother. It wounds them. It weakens their conscience. It brings them where you are actually sinning against Christ himself. So the next time you're in your position, I hope you're not in that position, and you're staring at somebody in your eyes and say, oh, you have liberty. You should go ahead. Come on. Let's go watch the movie. I can't watch that movie. That I've looked it up. It the language, the, the sexual scene, I can't touch it. Oh, man, close your eyes. Close your ears. I'll let you know where the bad parts are. Now, you need to get through it. No, my conscience is telling me, no, I cannot watch it. Filter it with love and say, oh, you're, okay, that's no problem. A good Disney is a great one, right? <laughs> we'll go Disney. No, just, why don't you just spend some time together in the Word and pray with one another and, and just have a, a nice fellowship meal together. Why? Because you don't want to sin against Christ. Yes, you can claim your right, but what about the rights of your weak brother? Romans 12, or Romans 14, 21 it is neither, it is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. So why is the brother who will not eat the meat sacrificed to an idol considered weak? It's not because they don't have self-control. It's because their mind, their conscience, their their understanding is not giving them the freedom to do what you have the freedom to do. And then to influence that weak brother to go against their conscience would weaken them, that would hurt them, and actually cause them to sin and you to sin against Christ. See, when we exercise our Christian liberty, we must do it with love. Because all sin is against God. 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and, and sin is lawlessness. David understood this when he killed Uriah and had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. How did he respond there in Psalm 51.4? Against you, you only have I sinned. He understood that I, 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 I sinned against my God when I did this. I'm accountable to him. Joseph. Remember he worked with Potiphar. An officer of Pharaoh in Genesis 39.9. And Potiphar's wife came and tried to force him to lie, to lay, have him lay with her. And he says to her, what? How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
sin is against God. And our freedom stops when it affects others in a negative way. You do not have the freedom in Christian liberty to cause another one to stumble. Did you hear me? I hope you understood that. I'm trying to say it as lovingly as I can to you. Because over the years in ministry, I've seen and I have heard so many people say they're going to just have to get over it. It's their problem, not mine. I'm not changing my lifestyle or changing my ways or what I do for anybody. You're sinning against Christ, my brothers and sisters, with that attitude. Because it does matter to God. It may not matter to you, but it does matter to your God. And he sees all things, he knows all things, and he's everywhere. And nothing is going to get by him when it comes to working with you and I. <laughs> you will be dealt with, I assure you. But Paul is so lovingly saying, you're, you're stumbling a brother Yes, a legalist could be blind to the things that God has freed them from. And he, they, at some point, that, that person may become free and their conscience will change and they will understand and they will come along with you and it'll be fine. But there's also another part of that coin there that you can flip on that side and say, maybe not being a legalist. It could be someone who just hasn't matured in Christ and understood and they're just not comfortable yet. But then the legalist side, we know in Galatians 2... Paul rebukes Peter. Why? Because Peter was associating an approval of the Jewish legalists at that time, telling the Gentiles they must follow the Jewish customs and laws to be saved. Now, if you understand that, what happens is Peter could say, and those could say, wait a minute, you're violating my conscience, man. They have to follow the Jewish laws and customs to be saved. Oh, you don't want me to stumble me, do you? I, I'm trying to learn, and, you're, and people will try to convince you to come to a legalistic point of view because of their conscience, when in actuality, Paul and Peter would never, ever put a, a, a believer in a position saying that you had to take on the Jewish customs and the laws to be saved. because Why? Because that violates the word of God. Paul would have said, you are not stumbled, you legalist, because you're not being tempted to sin. There's the difference. You're not being tempted to sin through their actions. Your legalism is being offended because you want people to be under the bondage of legalism and the do's and the don'ts that the scriptures do not say. Because you want people not to live in Christian liberty. You want them to live under the law and not under grace. You see it in today. You see many pastors are out there saying, you and I who have living by grace think we have way too much freedom. We should be living under the law. How could you dare go to a church and not be in a three-piece suit? Show me that in the scripture. You can't be in leadership because you have tats and longer hair. Show me that in the scripture. See, 
That's not what Paul's saying here. We're not because you're, I'm making you stumble because you, I'm not sinning. I'm not causing you to sin. You're just trying to get me into your legalism, and you're just offended because of the fact that I have freedom in Christ. And out of love, Paul would have said to these, these legalists, I will never act in a way that might tempt you to sin, but I don't care at all about offending your legalism. That's what Paul would have said, and it has said in the scripture. And that's where we have to find that balance in our walk with Christ. Remember, in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in loneliness of mind, let each esteem each other better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in who? Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, you see the others focused, others focused, others focused? That applies to your spouse, that applies to your children, that applies to your brothers and sisters, that applies to your neighbors. Those around you, we must be others focused and not so selfish. Because we must remember, we must live out our Christian liberty 